Good morning, North Boulevard and guests. Thank you so much. Those of you who are here in person, so glad you're here that you braved it and decided you would put on that mask. And those of you who are joining us from home, one of the praises I want to offer, this is an hour for me to offer a praise, is that uh, literally thousands of people have joined us online. And so if we got something out of the pandemic besides maybe increased, uh, increased satisfaction from small groups, it might just be the fact that so many people now are able to join us. We're glad you're with us. And today I'm excited because I'm starting a new series on what might be my favorite New Testament book, my favorite biblical book of all times, which is Ephesians. I say might be because I don't know, it's hard for me to pick a favorite, but I really like this letter to Ephesians. I'm going to start with a quick story. For almost 25 years, North Boulevard uh, sponsored a work in Dundee, Scotland, a church there. And uh, we would take campaigns over there fairly regularly. The British government is somewhat restrictive on what they'll let you do when you come as an American group. And in fact, as the years have gone by, they've become very restrictive. If we were to go over and announce that we're going to go door knocking, they would literally turn us away from the country and not let us back in. So um, it's kind of sad to me. But as we were trying to look for ways through the years to make an impact in behalf of the little church there in Dundee, we would do all sorts of creative things. And one of the things that we did was go down to nursing homes and do devotionals. Um, it was a great service. It gave us contacts. We would often follow up on the contacts of people who worked there or family members or even some of the residents with Bible studies. When we did the devotionals, we would sing Scottish hymns. The uh, Scottish people have a really, really long history of singing the Psalms especially, but singing all sorts of songs. And uh, the Scottish people, especially the older people, they tend to be, uh, have a stiff upper lip. They tend to be very reserved and stoic in their expression of emotions. But when we would sing those hymns, inevitably, they would break down the most stoic of people. People, in some cases, who didn't really even have all their mental uh, faculties would break down and cry every time it happened. The immediate cause of that was, of course, the fact that many of them hadn't heard those Christian hymns in decades. Now, Scotland is largely now a non-Christian nation. Most of these residents had not been to church in decades. But years ago, they went with their parents, they went with their siblings, and they were some of the most moving experiences of their lives. So to hear those hymns from their childhood... Uh, the, the 23rd Psalm is often sung at weddings, or it certainly was at least uh, back then. They would just, it just moved them to tears, which often moved us to tears. But there's a secondary cause. The immediate one is the memory. The secondary cause is just this. Praising God puts us in touch with the spiritual realities of the universe. It just changes things. And that's the lesson I want us to get out of this study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Let me put it this way. We live in an age of spiritual alienation. Alienation simply means that we've been separated. In fact, you really could argue that it's not just spiritual. It's an age of alienation. We're alienated in part from a common life now by face masks and quarantines and whatnot. Blacks and whites feel alienated in many cases here in the U.S., cities and urban states, uh, Democrats and Republicans. There just seems to be a heightened sense of alienation. That doesn't even include the sense of alienation that most of us feel with our own souls. That is, in some senses, to be human now, since the fall of humanity, is to live with a sense of alienation that there's something supposed to be better than what actually is. 
There is a pervasive sense of alienation. The letter to the Ephesians is Paul's way of addressing this alienation. And what he teaches us in this letter is a super important lesson. He teaches us that Christ has built the bridge over our alienation. Christ has built a bridge from hell to heaven, a bridge from black to white, a bridge even from Republican and Democrat, a bridge from my own sin to my salvation. Christ has laid his body down as a bridge over all forms of alienation. And what I hope pops into your head at some point in this lesson is the question, okay, what do I do with this? Because here's the answer. We're going to look at this in the first chapter of Ephesians. Praise is how you cross the bridge. If that doesn't make sense, just wait. Praise is how we cross the bridge. So we start out in this letter, Paul has written to the Ephesians, and I'll open up with the first two verses, make a few comments, and what I'm going to do is fairly quickly read through Ephesians chapter 1, making a few comments, and then we're going to sort of draw the final lesson, which is the lesson that praises how you cross the bridge over our alienation. Let me say this, as we start this series, I really want to challenge you to read Ephesians. In fact, it's a very simple read. You can read it in less than 30 minutes. If you would read Ephesians maybe once a week for the next seven weeks, you'd be greatly blessed. But even if you don't do that, please bring a Bible. Have a Bible in your lap. Those of you who are at home in your gym shorts, go grab your Bibles. You can use it on your cell phone or your tablet, but have a Bible in front of you. I'm going to move pretty quickly because I want to not just give you grammar and historical backgrounds and theology. I want to give you application. I want you to hear how this letter can change everything for you. And so you're going to need to have a Bible open in front of you. Let's read the first two verses, make a comment, and then we'll move quickly through the first chapter of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. There's three things I want to point out here. The first is I just want to affirm that when we read Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we are reading the very Word of God, the infallible and perfect Word of God. We have to say this because we live in a time when many people downplay the role of the Apostle Paul. They do this not because there's something wrong with Paul, but because there's something wrong with them and because Paul doesn't agree with their broken theology. So they have to, in some senses, downplay Paul. I just want to make sure you understand. Paul clarifies he is an apostle, that's an ambassador, by God's very will. And he puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter. He says that when he speaks, it is not human words that he speaks. It is the very word of God. So when we read Ephesians, I want to make sure you understand this is not just a spiritual traveler with you. Paul is not just someone else on a spiritual journey. Paul speaks as a very ambassador of Jesus Christ, and his words are the Word of God. So that makes it really important. The second thing I want to point out is that Paul talks about, in this text, holy people, faithful people. The Latin term is saints. And so Paul is addressing to this, this letter to everyone who has been sanctified by Jesus Christ, and that's most of you. We might be used to the Roman Catholic tradition, which thinks of a saint as a very special person, very separated even from other believers, but not in Paul's language. In Paul's language, everyone who's been redeemed by Jesus is a saint. So it would be appropriate for us to call one another saint, Saint Sarah, Saint Donnie. It would be appropriate for us to do that because we are saints in Jesus. And then the third thing I want to say is, um, I just want to make a comment on this. Paul says to the saints, in most of our English translations, it says, in Ephesus. 
a word about this. Ephesus was actually a major city in Paul's day. It's on the west coast of what we call Turkey. It was a port city. Uh, even today, the ruins of Ephesus give you some sense of just how uh, magnificent the city was. Uh, it was a capital city. It had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there in Ephesus, the great temple of Diana or Artemis, as the Greeks called her. And we get a sense of the size of Ephesus by its theater. So one way that you would estimate the population of a city in the ancient Roman world was you look at the theater, however many people a theater holds, you multiply that by 10, and that gives you a sense of how large the city was. Well, the theater in Ephesus holds 30,000 people. It still does. It's still there, which means the population of Ephesus was probably somewhere around 300,000 people, which is an enormous city in the Roman Empire. But I do want you to be aware of the fact that when we read our English Bibles, we're actually reading a, um, a compilation of a number of different manuscripts. There are well over 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament from ancient times. And those manuscripts often have variations in them. And I just want you to be aware of the fact that several of the oldest and most reliable manuscripts don't even mention Ephesus. So it doesn't say to the saints in Ephesus, it just says to the saints. So it raises a question, first of all, what's going on here? Why is Ephesus in some manuscripts and not in others? And the answer may be this. This is a guess. It may be that Paul wrote Ephesians as a circular letter, just to be circulated among all the churches in Asia Minor. And then it was collected and stored in Ephesus, so they attached the word Ephesus to it. That's my guess as to what happened. It's not a big deal, but I wouldn't want you to discover it in your study of Ephesians and then think, wow, how could this even possibly be? And the truth is, we have so many manuscripts of the New Testament. We're blessed to have so many, but they also have some variations in them. And we're often left trying to determine what was the original wording here. Okay, enough on that. Now, I want you to see that the first chapter, which is the chapter we'll cover today, and we'll do it briefly. I'm going to have to move very quickly. Really only has two sections. And this is easy to remember. And it's a blessing to remember it. So the first 14 verses, Paul just offers a blessing to us based on God who is blessed. So the first 14 verses, it's a blessing. And then beginning at verse 15 and going down to verse 23, it's a prayer. So there's two things in Ephesians chapter 1. And by the way, if you don't have this in your head, I, I will tell you this. Ephesians 1 is so complicated. It's, such, it's some of the best Greek in the Bible. It's very sophisticated Greek. It uses what grammarians call hypotactic structure. That is, it has a sentence with a, um, with a, with a, 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 a subjective clause, another clause, a qualifying clause, and it just keeps going. It's one long sentence in Greek. So if you don't have an outline when you go through it, it can be hard to follow at times. And the outline really is simple, although the language itself is very complex. In fact, it's rich in liturgical language. It's the kind of language that you would use if you were writing a sophisticated poem about God. It's simple, a blessing and a prayer, a blessing and a prayer. Let's look at the blessing first. Now, before we do that, I, I do need to realize one of the things that we're going to have to interact with all through the Ephesian letter is the concept of a spirit. What is a spirit? Because Paul's going to make all sorts of spiritual arguments. The, I think the whole worldview of spirituality is largely lost on Americans. Uh, it's hard for me, so I'm not picking on you. It's hard for me as well. 
In fact, one of the defining elements of a secular age, and we live in a secular age, is a loss of the sense of that which is spiritual. So when we say someone's spiritual today, we usually mean they have deep emotions or deep feelings. That's not what spiritual meant in biblical days. The idea of a spirit in biblical days was this. And by the way, this is not only the idea in biblical days. This is the idea most humans have had most places on planet Earth, and many of them still do. It is the conviction that there are forces that lie behind the world that presents itself to us. And these forces are personal, powerful, and everywhere. So whenever you see um, the wind blow, for example, you see what the wind does to the trees, you see the garbage or the you know, leaf or whatever blowing through the yard, but you don't actually see the wind. You see what the wind does. Well, in the, in the Bible, the Holy Spirit and all spiritual forces, demons and angels and all other spirits, they are comparable to the wind. They are the thing that's making everything else happen. So if you could peel back the world that presents itself to us in our senses, if you could peel back the world of tables and eyeglasses and bottles of water, behind all of it are spiritual forces that are powerful, personal, and everywhere. In this room right now, there are angels, and trying to get in this room right now are demons. In this room right now is the Holy Spirit. Behind the curtain of the reality that presents itself to us is an entire spiritual battle. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 6, the text that so many of us like, when he says, we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and authorities. In chapter 2, he's going to talk about the prince of the air. He's talking about spiritual forces. If you don't understand spirituality, Ephesians is not going to make a lot of sense to you. So we're going to try to recapture a sense of what is spiritual as we read through Ephesians. And I have to say, it's quite a challenge. It's a challenge for me because we have been acclimated by secularism not to see it. We just don't see it. We will explain why there's wind. Warm air meets cold air. They jumble up. The, you know, the warm goes up. The cold goes down. And that creates wind. We explain that. But we don't seem to have the capacity to ask the question, why would there even be warm air and cold air? We don't have the capacity to ask the real why questions. Spiritual reality is the why. Science is the how. Science can explain why wind blows. But it takes a spiritual vision to understand why it blows. There's one thing to explain how. It's a different thing to explain why. So we're going to recover the why as we work through Ephesians. And we'll start with... Uh, with verse 1, and I just want to pause before I get to verse 1 because I just want to say that even as I outlined Ephesians by saying the first part's a blessing, the New International Version, which is a great translation, and I've used it for 30 years, it translates the word bless as praise, which sort of betrays my whole outline right from the first moment. So I want you to see in the ESV the word there is blessed. And let's start by reading what the text says. So we're going to read the blessing of God who blesses us, and you're going to see that there are six blessings that God offers in this text. Six blessings. Let's start with our reading. The first one is God blesses us by choosing us. He chose you. Praise be or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. So we're blessing God because he blessed us in the heavenly realms. That's a spiritual claim in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So the very first thing I want you to see is that we bless God because God chose us. He chose you. And I want to make sure that you let that sink in for just a second, even though we have to move fast. God chose you. You're going to see in just a moment, before God even created you, he chose you. 
I just remind you what it might have felt like, those of you who are a little bit older, when you were on the playground and you were 13 and your best friend was appointed captain of the team and he picked you first. How good it felt. Now, God literally chose us. We often think we chose God. But long before we ever even had the capacity to choose God, he chose us. He said, I want that guy on my team. I want Nancy on my team. Nancy, he chose you before you were born. He chose you. That's right. Praise God. So God chose us. Second, he predestined you, starting at verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us and the one he loves. So God not only chose you, he predestined you. Predestination simply means before it happened, God had already decided what was going to happen. Predestination is when you buy a crib and you're only three months pregnant. It's when you say, okay, I know I'm bringing a baby home. I'm going to get a place all ready for that baby. Before you were born, God said, I know this is the guy I'm going to choose. I'm going to bring all these forces into his life, all these people into his life, so that he will pick me, and I'm going to have a place for him when he does. I just want you to know that's what God did for you. God picked you even before you knew you could pick him. He predestined you. No wonder the text starts out by saying, blessed be the God Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He not only predestined you, he redeemed you. The word redeemed simply means to buy you back. So God said, all right, I'm going to pick you out. Sean, I'm picking Sean out, God said. I'm going to bring a bunch of people in his life. I'm going to predestine him. I'm going to bring a bunch of people in his life. They're going to lead him to believe. His mother, his father who are believers. Katie, who's a believer. Other people. I'm going to bring him into the life. And then when he responds to my chosenness, I'm going to buy him out of his sin. That's redemption. So here's how Paul puts it in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. Do you see why it's such a liturgical, praiseworthy text? He not only redeemed us, but then he said, you know what? I'm going to reveal to you the secret of the universe. This is a secret generations have longed to see. I'm giving it now to you. God has literally revealed to us the ABCs of his master plan. Do you know how many prophets wanted to see what you get to see every day? How many kings yearn for what you get every single day? How Abraham longed for it and Enoch longed for it and Noah longed for it. How Moses longed for it. How Isaiah longed for it and Jeremiah. They all longed for what God said. Now I've called you. I've chosen you. I've predestined you. Now I'm going to show you the secret of the universe. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure, God has whispered in your ear the secret of his plan which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect until the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. By the way, I do think that verse 10 and 11 might be the thesis verse of the letter to the Ephesians. I'm not going to spend time on it now. But the whole goal of this was that God was going to bring everything under the control of Jesus. And that has happened. Jesus is now king of the universe. He has authority over everything. So God not only revealed his plan to you, but then he gave you an inheritance. 
The NIV translates it a little differently, but the word there literally means, it's the word that means just inheritance. God not only revealed his plan to you, but listen to how he did it. In him we obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. So, are you following what God has done? We're almost on the sixth one. God chose you. He predestined you, he redeemed you, he revealed his will to you, he gave you an inheritance, and then just to make sure you could achieve all this, because left on our own, we couldn't do it, he gave you his Holy Spirit. When you believed, he gave you his Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit becomes the power and the wisdom by which we live. By the way, I see one or two of you is taking a picture. I'll make the outline available. It's not the final. It's not necessarily the best. It's just how I outline the chapter. It helps me to read it. We'll put it online. Listen to this. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So think of a seal as a signature. When you sign a check or a legal document, it now becomes official. And what God has done is when he redeemed you, when he chose you, when he predestined you, when he gave you his treasure and he revealed his will to you, he signed his name on your life and said, this is now mine. The Holy Spirit, he's got signature on his life. And not just that, but he's also a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. God not only signed his name on you, he gave you a deposit of what you're about to get. So blessed be God. That's why he starts out by saying, blessed be the God of our Father and God and our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the first part of Ephesians 1. It's a blessing. The second part is a prayer. And before we read the prayer, let me just make the observation that our apostle, our apostle Paul prays for us. I'm not choked up on that thought. I'm just choked up. Hang on. being choked up. It's worthy of being choked up on. Paul prays for us. So Paul is not just a theology teacher. He's not just a historian. He's not just a letter writer. He loves us. He loves us enough to pray for us. Like Paul wants a relationship with us. I just want to say that because so many, um, so many Christians have denigrated Paul, which is heartbreaking and infuriating, really, to be honest. This is the apostle of Jesus who eventually gave his life for Jesus. And he loves us enough to pray over us. So let's listen to the prayer that he offers. It's a twofold prayer. First, he prays that we'll have knowledge in him. And second, he prays that we'll know the hope and the power that he has given to us. We'll start in verse 15. He says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord. I'm going to read it out of my written text. I want you to, I want you actually to see me holding the Bible. Your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you may know him better. Paul is literally praying that you will come to know God better. 
not just knowing about God, but actually knowing God. And I will say that the soul's deepest thirst is the thirst of knowing God. If you wonder why there's alienation in your soul, it's because we're separated from God. Our souls are restless and they only find their peace when they know God. It's what we were made to be. You were created to love and enjoy God. And so Paul's prayer, I just want you to know him even better. And then the last part of his prayer, so I suggest that he prayed for two things, that you would have knowledge in him, and then you would come to recognize the hope and the power that had been afforded you. So he said a beautiful phrase, by the way, a wonderful phrase in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So he says, I want you to know the hope you've got about a treasure that's coming your way and the power that you get, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power he now has as king of the universe is yours. And God placed all things under his feet. And appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You see that Paul is simply starting out this fantastic, fabulous letter about how to have a deep and wide spiritual relationship with your God by saying, first of all, know how blessed you are. Recognize how much he's blessed you. And I pray that you know it even better. Now, I want to make an application. Let me go back to my original statement. We live in an age of alienation. By the way, we're going to address this. I want to talk about some of the alienation. I, I, I don't want this uh, uh, study only to be grammatical or theological or historical. I want it to deal with the issues we're actually facing in the 21st century. I mean, these are tough times. There have been tougher times. In many places in the world right now, there are tougher times now. But let's be honest, for a lot of us, these are tough times. And I just want to make sure that we understand if we're going to respond rightly to tough times, we need to understand what God has already done for us. You need to know who you are. You need to know the blessings he's already given you. You need to know the hope to which he's called you and the power he's made available to you. Or you will not stand in these tough times. We live in an age of spiritual alienation. God in Christ has bridged our alienation. And now the question is, what do I do? What do I do? And I'm going to wrap it up with that. But I want to make sure that you see how this chapter answers the question and not in a subtle way. Just watch this. Verse 3 of chapter 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, God has predestined us to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, God has adopted us as sons to the praise of his glorious grace. How about verse 14? We get the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. Are you noticing anything? The whole chapter is designed to teach us one fundamental truth. God made me as his praise. It's kind of like having a daughter that's beautiful and you put her picture up everywhere. Or a son who's a great athlete and you want everybody to watch those YouTube videos of him running across the field or across the basketball court. They are your pride and joy. They're your glory. 
Paul is making the argument God created you to be his glory. God's got pictures of you on his walls. He's sharing YouTube videos with Jesus about you. He created us for his praise. The whole chapter is about this. What I want you to see is that God created us for his praise, and that means my purpose in life is what? To praise him. So if Jesus is the bridge that goes across all of our divides, he's the bridge across all our alienations, he's the bridge from hell back to heaven, He's the bridge from my brokenness and my sinfulness back to holiness. He's the bridge between black and white. He's the bridge between Republican and Democrat. He's the bridge between the old and the young. He's the bridge between husband and wife when it's not working. He's the bridge. If he's the bridge, you cross the bridge by praising him. And that's not something a lot of us have really ever learned. We just haven't. I haven't even learned it. We just grew up in this introverted fellowship. Churches of Christ are generally introverted. It's an introverted fellowship. White churches of Christ especially. That's not, I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying. We're not kind of reserved. This is how we sit in church, you know, hoping nobody will touch us. When we sing, we don't want to look up too much. When we first started putting music on the walls, it was a huge scandal. And I realized it wasn't really a scandal because we thought there was something special about songbooks. We just were so timid we didn't want to have to look up. Y'all remember Kate Jong? Kate was an intern at North Boulevard, Korean. She and some of, some, some of her family were down visiting and, uh, Tennessee while she was here. And uh, you know, wanted to see something pretty about Tennessee. So I took her over to Savage Golf, Stone Door. Took the group, group of Koreans to Stone Door. And by the way, Koreans, very, my impression of Koreans, very reserved until they start worshiping. And then it all comes out like, like nothing you've ever seen. We go to Stone Doors, a beautiful canyon view. If you haven't been there, you should go. We look off the canyon. The first thing Kate's daughter says, before anything else is said, oh, can we stop and worship God? And I just thought, well, I'd have never thought to say that. I've only been preaching for 35 years, and it never even dawned on me that that would be a great response to Stone Door. Because I think so many of us have this introverted reflex about Jesus. I love him. I just don't want anybody to know. I don't ever want to say it. Oh my goodness, that would be so embarrassing to say it. I just want you to know, if you want to cross the bridge that Jesus provides in his own self, you're going to have to praise him. Praise is the language that crosses the bridge. So what is praise? I'll tell you what I mean. Praise is the expressing the value of something. The English word praise comes from a Latin term that means pricey, price, praise, price. Got it? So in praise, all you're doing is expressing the great value of something. By the way, the word worship comes from a Germanic word that means to tell what it's worth, worthship. So when we praise, all we're doing is we're expressing the value of something. And I want to make sure you understand, if you feel the value but don't express it, you're not quite there. It's like feeling love but not actually saying it. And I just want to make sure you know this, unexpressed love is torture, when you secretly love somebody you can't tell anybody, it's torment. In the same way, loving God but never saying anything about it, never singing about it, never shouting about it, never doing anything about it, it's torture. So praise always brings with it the idea that I not only appreciate it, I express my appreciation. 
Don't just be grateful, say thank you. Praise expresses itself when you look for and find the goodness of Christ in every corner of your life. We had a, fr- uh, a funeral on Friday afternoon. Our beloved brother, uh, Chip Montgomery, passed away. And as uh, we did the funeral, went even down to the graveside, a beautiful grave down in the Beach Grove. Cherie, his wife, is there. And I, I, I went up, I, I finished the graveside, and I said something to her about, let me know if we can help. And Cherie said, and I've heard Cherie say this a hundred times, since Chip has had cancer now for years. Oh, God is so good. He is so good. That's what she says. First words out of her mouth after her husband is buried. Now, if you come to second service, and Shri was at first, and she was happy for me to share this. So, I mean, she was fine with me sharing it. If you come to second service before COVID, you might remember that right down here, this is my right for those of you on television, Cherie and Catherine, her daughter, were the two that just had their hands up in the air the whole time we would sing. And it dawns on me, oh, I know why they praise so expressively. Because she's able to see the work of God even in the loss of her beloved husband. Praise is when I can find God at work everywhere. That's what praise constitutes. Praise is when you say thank you to Christ. Praise is when you openly put Christ first in your life. Praise is when you use your gifts in open service to Christ. If you're an artist, you use your art to express thanks to Christ. If you're a musician, you use your music to say thank you to Jesus. If you're an architect, uh, you, you use your contracting, your, your building to praise Jesus. It's when we express our gratitude to who Jesus is. Praise is when you talk about your problems with Christ. Praise can happen even when you're arguing with Jesus because when you argue with somebody, it proves you're taking them seriously. That's why you argue with your wife. You argue with your husband and your wife more than anybody else because you take them most seriously. And if you take Jesus seriously, there are going to be times you're going to say, Jesus, I don't get this. I don't understand what you're doing. I need you to tell me what's going on here. That's a form of praise. One of the highest forms of praise. And the thing that pops into our mind most frequently, and it's not for bad reason, praise is when you sing your songs too and about Christ. And oh, how I miss it. It's awesome. Those of you who are watching from home in your gym shorts, it's awesome. But man, do I miss a thousand voices, maskless, singing their praises, the roof coming down, the applause afterwards. I miss it. You know why I miss it? Because my soul is thirsty for that kind of praise. My soul's thirsty for it. Praise is when you make disciples of Christ. And let me just tell you, here's why praise bridges the gap. Here's how it works. When you praise, you see things you didn't see otherwise. When you say thank you, you feel gratitude. You see, you think it's the other way around. You think I say thank you because I feel gratitude, but oftentimes our bodies lead our emotions. We say it and then we start feeling it. Think about coming to church. Half the time, I don't want to come to church. I know you don't want to. And then when you get here, you're so glad you came. It was doing it that made you feel it. When you praise Jesus, he appears everywhere. Praise brings to memory the past works of Christ. That's why those older people in that nursing home weep when we sing. They remember mama and daddy. They remember their wedding. They remember their childhood. Sweet memories come rushing in and they sob and sob. Praise brings to memory the things that God has done. Praise links the events of our lives into a common story. Think of the power of a love song. A love song ties you all the way back to your Barry Manilow years. Leisure suits. A love song can connect all the dots in your life. Praise has that power. Praise suppresses a tendency to be selfish, a tendency most of us have. When I'm busy praising God, it's hard to be selfish. 
Praise motivates me. Think about how we use songs, praise, to get a team going. You know, when the Titans are playing, grannies are out there firing their shotguns in the air because they're so excited. It motivates us. Praise declares the glory of Christ to the world. What I want you to see is that Jesus has provided the bridge between us and the things we're alienated from. If you want to cross the bridge, if you just want to sit there and look at it, well, rats, don't. Don't just sit there and look at it. Cross it. And you cross it when you open your mouth, open your hands, open your feet, open yourself in praise. All right, so I'm just about done, but I got to give you a challenge. I'm, it, so I thought to myself, okay, I really, I'm not that good at praising. I'm, I'm, I think I'm good at praising when we're together. Uh, the youngs, my family, we come from a long line of grumblers. Um, daddy, my daddy, I know you're watching this. I got it from you. I mean, you grumbled a lot. Now I grumble a lot. I love you, but you know you were a grumbler. Um, <laughs> don't send me a text about that. It's hard to praise, isn't it, sometimes? So I've got a little discipline that I thought this will help me. See if it helps you. I'm going to ask you to make a commitment. It's a simple commitment, but I'm going to ask you to show your hands. At home, I'm asking you to show your hands. I can see you. I don't know if you know that, but you know how you see me. I see you too. I can see through the channel button. I'm going to ask you to make a commitment. It's not hard. I'm going to ask you to make a commitment. And here's the guarantee. If you will do this next Sunday... I guarantee you, you will feel different when you show up. I guarantee it. It's not hard. It's not going to be hard, so don't panic. But it is going to require a little bit of discipline. You're probably going to need your husband or your wife or your kids or somebody maybe to remind you. Maybe you want to set your phone for a reminder. Uh, maybe you just want to do, write it on your whatever you look at a whole lot, put it on your screen or whatever, screensaver. Are you ready? I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, but first I'm going to tell you what the challenge is. Here, here it is. <laughs> I like that. Good spirit there. Julie's raised her hand. We haven't even told her what it is yet. It's serve your husband every day faithfully. <laughs> you just exposed yourself to that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and now the other one. I want you to find one God thing worthy of praise, and I want you to express it once every hour, every waking hour, until next Sunday. Now, it's not complicated. I'm not suggesting you have to compose a song every hour. What I'm saying is, I already did my this hour. I, out there, I did my this hour. Someone came up and said, listen to this. They said, since COVID, she said her friend who's been, uh, just lost a spouse, has really been struggling, has started watching North Boulevard services. And in her words, they have been so encouraged. And so instead of saying, well, good, I'm glad. I hope the sermons are okay, which is what I would normally do. I said, praise the Lord. There you go. I just said that. That's my one thing for that hour. Will you discipline yourself? And by the way, if you miss an hour, don't jump off a cliff. All you got to do is do two the next hour. It can be a simple sentence. It, you play a song, a song that praises God and sing a bar with it. Maybe it's just something with your hands. Do something once an hour, every waking hour between now and next Sunday. I guarantee you, you'll come back next Sunday feeling different. I guarantee you when you watch next Sunday, you'll feel different. So I'm about to ask. I'm committed to doing this. Who else is? Almost all of you. If you're not committed to doing it, don't worry. The Holy Spirit will catch you in His time. Here's the deal, my friends. We live in an age of alienation. You know, 
You know we do. You feel it in your soul. Jesus laid his body down as the bridge over that chasm. And praise is how you cross it. So let's all stand up. You can stand up at home too. I know you don't think you need to, but stand up. And let's offer praise to God in this, um, in this song. And if you're here or even if you're at home, if you want to contact us, you say, I'm ready to do something. I want to make some kind of response. That's why we're here. You let us know. We'll do whatever we can to help you cross the bridge Jesus provides. Let's sing our song.